Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. On today's show, we'll be talking about working as an editor of books and journals. So if you take a book, let's say a travel guide to India, then as an editor, you may have to take decisions such as how long should the book be? So should it be 300 pages or 10 pages, 50 pages or just two pages? Or what kind of articles should you include in that book? So for example, should you talk about what are the best seasons to go to India? Or should you talk about how Taj Mahal is a great place to visit in India? Or how much money should you carry when you're visiting India? Things like that. So as an editor, you're the one who's thinking about what is it that is needed to include in the book to make it a success? And of course, is it now ready to be published or should the content be fine-tuned even further? So anyway, that's a very, very high-level definition of what an editor does. And to really help us understand this area in detail, our guest on today's show is Erica Gordon-Mallon. Erica has had a very long and diverse career in this space. She started out as an editor with Timber Press under Workman Publishing. This was in London in the UK. She worked there for four years. And over here, she worked on more than 40 titles in the areas of gardening and natural history. And that's because that's the space that Timber Press publishes books in. But many of the books that Erica worked on were in fact nominated for awards, such as the Reference Book of the Year by the Garden Writers Guild. Then after this, Erica was working as a senior editor with Mostly Wrote in New York. And here again, she worked on a variety of nonfiction titles in areas such as yoga and Pilates and fitness. Uh, she has also worked in some fairly academic settings. So she was working as a journal manager at the London School of Economics. And here she oversaw the editorial processing of more than 500 submissions to their generalist economics journal. And most recently, Erica has been working as an acquisitions editor with Skyhorse Publishing in New York. Skyhorse Publishing is a fairly well-known publishing house. They have published around 34 New York Times bestsellers. And during her time with Skyhorse, Erica has worked on a number of books. She's helped in both acquiring these books as well as editing these books. And these books have been in areas such as true crime, psychology, cultural studies, history, politics, and many other areas. So there's a lot that we can learn from Erica. In fact, most recently, one of the books that Erica has been working on, a business book, was also on the number one spot on Amazon. So again, she has a lot of experience in this space. And I really hope that you find today's discussion with Erica helpful and useful. And without further ado, let's welcome Erica to the show. Hey, Erica, how are you? Thank you for joining us. 
Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. So number one on Amazon. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was really exciting to see that. Yeah, so it's a business book. Can you share the title of the book? Yes, this is a book that I helped to edit. And the title of the book is Ask. Nice okay. kind of short, punchy title. <laughs> the <laughs> the uh, subtitle is not as punchy. It's called The Counterintuitive Online Formula to Discover Exactly What Your Customers Want to Buy, Create a Mass of Raving Fans, and Take Any Business to the Next Level. Oh, man, <laughs> that's a long <laughs> subtitle. But yeah, uh, so, so what is the book about? Um, it's basically about the author has this really, really smart and insightful method for asking questions online in the form of what he calls survey funnels. Mm-hmm. So essentially, this is a new way for companies to make the most of the surveys that they that they already utilize. He's discovered how companies can really capitalize on the use of their surveys in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think of. So that's why I like the counterintuitive part of the subtitle. It's just a very, very useful book. Um, And I think a lot of readers have already seen results, whether they're working on very small online businesses or much, much larger corporations. So um, I think it's been, yeah, it's just uh, really taken off. Yeah, no, congratulations on the number one again. I mean, I guess as an editor, you would play an important role in figuring out the name of the book, right? Yeah, so much so pretty much all the content of the book <laughs> I give complete credit to the mm-hmm. author. The author and I collaborated when it came to the title of the book. Originally it was something about surveys and we decided fairly um, long into the process that we wanted it to be something that was more punchy and that would appeal to pretty much everyone, whether or not they had their own business or not. So we were thinking along the lines of one word titles, some of the really impactful ones, such as Launched by Jeff Walker. And um, we brainstorming over Skype and yeah, thought of that ask. And (laughs) we really just thought that that kind of we're like that that's it that's the one nice. so um and that ended up becoming you know very very catchy i would say for the book and i see now that the author has kind of rebranded his his methodology as ask right okay interesting very interesting yeah maybe i'll ask you for what name i should keep for my podcast but that's for later. <laughs> yeah. all right so well, titles are so important yeah 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 no and i and i think as we go deeper into the discussion we'll definitely touch upon these sort of key areas that an editor would spend time on mm-hmm. but uh why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey so far Okay, well, you've already um, uh, hit all the main points in your introduction. So right now, I'm a freelance editor living in New York City. And for the past 10 years, I've been working on books and academic journals. So mostly I handle nonfiction. And in the past, I've specialized in gardening books, (laughs) fitness books, and very recently, a wide range of commercial nonfiction, including, as you say, true crime psychology, also politics, history, and reference books. Yeah. On the journal side of things, I mm-hmm. focused on economics for a very long time and recently cardiology as well. Yeah, so you know, I am so curious. I mean, I, I really want to understand how does one single person work as an editor across such like very, very different genres of books. But before we get into that, why don't you describe for us in your own words the role of an editor? The role of an editor of any editor, I would say, is someone who 
is responsible for taking raw text, in other words, <clears throat> text that has not been edited and that has just been submitted by, by an author, taking that raw text and making it into something that is ready to undergo production and ultimately publication. So that's how I would define an editor of publications like books and journals. Obviously, that definition would differ tremendously for like a fashion magazine editor or yeah. a blog editor or something like that. But can, in my experience, that is yeah the basic definition of an editor. Yeah. Can you can you touch upon sort of the key differences that one might find depending on whether you're a fashion magazine editor or a journal editor? Like, How, how does that definition vary? Yeah, so those two roles would probably be like night and day. I don't know, as far as I know, a fashion magazine editor might not even be involved with the text of their magazine. They might instead be out meeting people, seeing fashion showrooms and making choices about what to include in their magazine. Hmm. Whereas a journal editor would be, or a journal manager, as I've, as I've been, and in that role, by the way, I oversee editing for the journal. A journal manager would basically be working on their journal eight hours a day. So they'd just be basically overseeing all of the copy editing, proofreading, typesetting. And also, in some cases, they'd be overseeing peer review right. of the journal, which is uh, establishing a network of academics based worldwide who right. would basically peer review the articles. Right. I mean, it. and again, I'm, I'm sort of like working off of what you're describing, but would you say that the role of an editor is almost to make sure that that thing which makes your publication a success you make sure that you include exactly what is needed to make your publication a success so if it's a fashion magazine then you want to make sure that you have the right sort of accessories and dresses and celebrities in your magazine whereas if you're a journal manager you might be more concerned with i want to make sure that i have the the most important research and articles in my publication and that the right people are viewing my publication stuff like that yeah for the most part for the most part you've described it correctly and I think that also really strongly applies to being a book editor particularly an acquisitions editor as an acquisitions editor you basically want to make sure that you have for instance front cover blurbs for your book you want to make sure that you have a forward writer and you want to make sure of course that you have what you need from the author in order to begin the editing process so that is a big part of it right yeah so maybe you can give us an overview of the various activities that a publishing house might undertake and then where the role of an editor comes in well, to focus on the most recent role that I've held in-house for the independent book publishing house, an acquisitions editor like I was would essentially scout for projects that we think will be not just commercially viable, but also likely to bring an innovative idea to the public domain. We would do this sometimes by going through all the queries we'd get from agents or directly from authors, and sometimes by going out and finding new authors who have, say, written interesting articles on blogs to the point where we think they are saying something new and may want to hear more from them. We then explore these ideas and read proposals, and then we do research on how similar books have performed over the years and contemplate how they will perform from a marketing angle, publicity angle. If we think we have something worth signing, we present it in a group editorial meeting to bounce ideas off coworkers. And if it's a go, we make an offer to the author or agent with the, with the publisher's permission. Right. Then contract negotiation begins. And once contracts are signed, we set a due date and 
periodically check in with the author to make sure they are actually writing their books <laughs> and that they're writing them in the way yeah. that we want them to. Yeah. <laughs> then the manuscripts come in, we edit them, and we send them to production to be proofread and typeset before they're printed and go off into the world. Mm. So um, even after publications, editors still have to liaise closely with publicity colleagues to advocate for their books because publicity is often a huge determinant of how a book will perform. Right. Okay. So this is very, very interesting. So you described a couple of things, right? One is sort of the role of an acquisitions editor, where your job is primarily to sort of scout for interesting ideas and books that might be worth considering for publication. Then those get shortlisted. Then you have your contract negotiations, whatever. And then finally, when something goes through in terms of okay yes we are publishing this then of course someone works with the author to make sure that the book is sort of publishable in your point of view and then there's the whole publicity aspect so i i want to touch upon each of these and again of course we're going to try and keep the conversation focused primarily on the on the editor aspect of this but the first is acquisitions editor so is there sort of one single editor person who's doing the job of both acquiring the book as well as working with the author in terms of editing the book or are these two separate people? That's a really great question. Um, so at my company, I was doing both. Okay, um, so you were and I was, okay. I was actually editing not only the books that I would acquire, but I was kept very busy editing um, the books of other editors who may have uh, perhaps left the company. <clears throat> so editing actually formed a huge part of my role. I see. Um, but at some companies, at some of the larger companies, I would say, this probably doesn't happen as much. Either the acquisitions editor just focuses on acquisitions and passes off the editing, what we call the project editing, to someone else, or they mostly focus on acquiring, but they also are responsible for kind of overseeing the process of editing, even if they're not actually editing it themselves okay. line by line. Okay. All right. Okay. That makes sense. So it, it can really go both ways is what you're saying. Sometimes the same yeah. person might do both and sometimes not. Okay. So one thing that you said, which really piqued my interest is that you are sort of as an editor who's actually working with the author, you are sort of trying to make sure that the book is done the right way. And I think that's sort of a controversial area, right? Because um, authors are always like, hey, you know, I it's my book and I have this vision in my mind in terms of what this book should sound like. And you as an editor may have your own ideas. So I, I guess from your point of view, what is that process like? And uh, can you maybe share examples of the kind of back and forth you might have in, with an author and how the two point of views uh, might differ? Yeah, that is what you describe is an occurrence that is so common. Um, in fact, I would say in pretty much every book project I've work on, worked on, there has been some kind of disconnect between the vision that the author has and the vision that, that I have as an editor, which sometimes might even be at odds a little bit with the vision that sales and marketing at my company or someone else in my company might have for the book, which on all these things have to be reconciled. So basically, I think the most important thing that I've learned as an editor is that it's important to really talk to the author once a project's been signed to really get a sense of what the author sees as important for their project. And then I would definitely um, <clears throat> let them know what I feel is important. And hopefully we can come to a consensus and then make sure that as they write the project, you know, I would periodically check in and make sure that we're working together on a shared vision 
but then ultimately there will be disagreements over the details <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but basically what you're saying is that it is critical that the author and the editor have that initial sync up where they land on one shared understanding of hey this is where we see the book uh, sort of going forward towards yeah i believe that is critical i agree okay. with that because i think that you know if you try to for instance trick an author <laughs> say like oh just write what you want and then you go yeah. back and change it to something completely different obviously they're not going to be happy with that right. So, uh, so yeah, I just think it's very important to agree on the big issues, the overarching ideas of a book yeah. before you get into the, the nitty gritty of editing it. Right. And generally speaking, as an editor, your sort of vision for the book, of course, you might have your own ideas in terms of what the book should sound like, read like, but is your sort of overall intended outcome also driven a lot by what you think will go down the best with sales and marketing what will generate the most revenue for the company again that's a great question and it really depends on which publishing house you are working at so i mean i tend to be not that sales and marketing driven but i always am thinking about it in the back of my head mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i think that when it comes to editing a manuscript that comes in i will definitely make sure that the book is palatable to as wide a readership as possible if that's what we're going for. And um, just as an editor, you know, you, you take steps when it comes to structuring the book and, and modifying the language to make sure that it can reach as many people as possible, that it doesn't sideline any readers. Okay. All right. Yeah. You know, I think it'll be very interesting to hear if you have any sort of simple examples which illustrate this point where if, if you want to sort of keep it like if you can illustrate this point in terms of you know we made this change or we just you know structured the book in this way and that just helped it appeal to more people yeah this was a long time ago but the one that comes to mind immediately and i'm sure there are many other examples but one that comes to mind is a book called clematis for small spaces this was a gardening book that actually you know won several awards in england it was just um a book about clematis i think in america we say Clematis, I'm not sure, okay. but yeah. what um, is that? What does it that was mean? a book on small decorative plants and there were some really beautiful, exciting, you know, new plants that were being developed by the author himself. So basically he initially wanted to write about, he wanted to write about these very specific plants that he had developed and talk a lot about the branding and include, in fact, a lot of branding information in each name whenever they were mentioned, which was very often throughout the book. So I basically had to talk him into using less branding in the book and making it not so focused on his proprietary plans, but rather using them as the basis for recommendations in the book, but also extending the recommendation to, to any other plans that would be relevant and making the advice much more universal and less focused on his growing the plants and his experience so he got on board with that and yeah. it really did very well okay and okay. I think it did much better than it would have done if it was just focused on on one brand of plants mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then I, I guess what this also means is that you know some authors might really appreciate the kind of inputs that you might bring in and then some authors just might not be okay with it in which case it might not work out the sort of the ongoing relationship yeah, that's true. And I have seen that happen where there's a clash. Um, I've seen that 
in my coworkers with their authors as well. I think in my experience, though, it usually does pan out. The authors do want to be published. And ultimately, when you have a contract with a traditional publisher, as opposed to self-publishing your book, you do usually have to go along with what the publisher wants. So um, as an editor, I try to seek a consensus, but ultimately it usually is the publisher's decision. Right. So, so okay. yeah, usually yeah. Um, that does end up working out yeah. because I've actually never seen an author like drop out of a project completely just because they're not happy with the content. They usually will stay. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. And then uh, going back to the whole acquisitions editor thing, right? So, how do you scout for these projects? Can you describe that process for us a little bit? I would say the most important aspect of finding projects that are worth publishing is networking with agents. So basically, um, you have to get to know agents and they have to get to know you. Um, you have to kind of establish trust between yourself and these agents so that they will come to you with their projects before they'll come to other publishers. Okay. And um Oftentimes, the agents will be sending you projects that will not really um, fit in your wheelhouse, that aren't aren't really what you are looking for. And then you can pass those on to colleagues, whether they're at your company or at another company. But sometimes <clears throat> the agent will really send something that really strikes a chord. And that usually is the best way to kind of get the ball rolling when it comes to an interesting project. Increasingly, we also have been looking at, you know, going out to blogs and looking at people who are in the media, for instance, who are getting a lot of media attention all of a sudden and seeing if they have something to say that perhaps could lend itself to a long form like a book. Right, right. I see. Very interesting. So uh, you made an interesting point, which is that a key part of being an acquisitions editor is networking with a lot of agents so that they bring the book, any interesting books, first to you as opposed to any other publisher. So how do you establish that? How do you, What is the kind of relationship that you have with these agents which compels them to come to you first? Yeah, I think it's an inexact science, but I think they appreciate when you give them prompt, meaningful feedback, even if you're rejecting their projects. They probably are not happy if you have projects that just kind of sit on your desk and there's no feedback and you're just holding on to them forever and ever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think promptness shows a lot of respect and is good for the relationship. Um, also, if you can suggest areas for improvement, areas to make the books more, the proposals more marketable, even if you are passing on them. And if, also if you can suggest, you know, certain outlets for the books, even if they're not right for you then I think agents appreciate that and will want to work with you even more. I see, I see. Okay. Also, like, so I'm sure you, as an acquisitions editor, you must be getting pitched like many, many projects every day. So how, uh, one is, of course, I'm sure you're looking at which, which of these projects even are in line with what your publishing house does. But what are sort of the key attributes that you look for in any project to figure out, hey, I think this is worth considering? For the most part, in the company where I was working most recently, we really, really believed in innovation and novelty. So we often would look for authors who were perhaps going against the grain or speaking out against something that had been so entrenched and established that that speaking out was considered 
taboo. And so we were sensitized to the fact that some of these voices had been squelched over the years and were trying to sort of be proactive in bringing them to the public domain. So that was, but that was just a characteristic of of my publishing house. Um, What I look for across the board is I like when authors have real content. I like when they are not just kind of babbling about themselves the whole book, (laughs) but rather (laughs) that they have, you know, real content, real data. Even if they're, even if it's a self-help book, if they're able to use real data points, if they have stories and anecdotes to illustrate their points, just basically a manuscript that is rich in content will always appeal. I also look for the writing style and only because that makes my job much easier because I do have to edit my books. So I I definitely have certain writing styles that I prefer. I I really like good syntax Mm -hmm. and I find that to be maybe a determining factor. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And when you do sort of select that, hey, I think this project looks interesting. So you've, you've done your scouting, you found a project which is interesting. Do you have to then sort of make a case to other people in the company that, hey, I think we should publish this? Yes, absolutely. And that process can vary widely from company to company, (laughs) yet again. But so at my last company, you did have to make a pretty strong case. And that would usually involve, you know, looking at sales figures for comparable titles, which had been published in the past three years or so. You'd want to know how long these books were, what um, what the trim size were, was, what the content was like, and of course, how they had sold. Okay. And so um, basically you're making a case for similar books. You're also making a case for how this book will stand out among these similar books. And then you're proposing print runs. You're proposing prices. You're proposing the extent, which is the page count, and so many other things. So you also kind of reach a point where you talk this over with colleagues, whether informally or at editorial meetings. And if everything is looking good, you would get – permission from the publisher to offer a certain advance and certain terms right 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 right. yeah so it's, it sounds like a very very data-driven approach then yeah it can be yeah yeah all right so then going back to something that you touched upon earlier in the conversation which is that depending on how uh, you know whether you're working at a fashion magazine or if you're working at a journal the role of an editor can vary quite a bit so maybe you can tell us a little bit just in terms of what are the sort of the key areas which can so like going back to your own career so you've worked in highly commercial spaces such as your role at Skyhorse and then you've worked at uh, in a very academic setting at London School of Economics so what were sort of the key differences in your role across these two areas yeah I mean those two roles were really just like night and day in so many different ways I think when you're working in academic publishing, you really get the chance to focus on content rather than um, focusing on various machinations within the company, such as like deadlines and moving things along, and rather than focusing on outreach and seeking out new submissions and, and liaising with outside people. I think in, in academic publishing, one thing that I really like is that you get to strongly focus on on content. So you know, at the economics journal, I got to really focus on making the process more transparent. I got to focus on overseeing copy editing. And um, when I worked for the larger academic publisher, it was the same thing. It was very, very focused on 
content Mm -hmm. almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. So I I guess if you're someone who's sort of right now looking to get into this space, there is some thinking, I guess, that you have to do in terms of what is it that you want to focus on? Do you want to focus more on content? Do you want to focus more on building relationships? Like apart from just your interest area, because that would be a key deciding factor in terms of what kind of company you should work at, right? That's so true. But oftentimes you don't really know at the outset or you can't really get, um, Mm -hmm. I would say, maybe a straight answer when it comes to what your day-to-day day day life would be like, whether you will be focusing on the the publications exclusively or whether it's a combination of different things. It's sometimes hard to gauge at the outset. Yeah, yeah. So can you walk us through maybe like a recent project of yours or any project that stands out in your mind and sort of the end-to-end process and the key decisions that you took throughout that process which would illustrate the uh, the role of an editor okay um well the book that i'm working on right now it's called life begins at 60 and it is a memoir by uh, frida bernbaum who um, achieved a lot of fame six years ago when she became the first or the oldest grandmother I'm sorry, the, the oldest mother in the United States of twins. She gave birth to twins at 60. Wow, yeah, okay. And <laughs> so this is her story. And this book, you know, is completely my my idea. I basically thought that, you know, she had been getting a lot of flack for having these twins at 60, but she also, you know, had a lot to say about it. She She's a psychologist who happens to specialize in family issues, and she had done a lot of research on, on family dynamics, and she really knew what she was doing going into this. So um, she had a lot to say, and she also had a lot of empowering advice to give about getting older. And so basically, I signed this book at Skyhorse when I was there. And we kind of set the parameters for the book. And this book, I was very, very involved in structural editing. So working with the author to come up with a structure for the book, where previously, we didn't really have one. And I tried to make the book a combination of self-help and memoir. And really wanted to make it her story, but also something that will reach lots of people, whether they're over 60 or whether they're younger and contemplating, you know, uh, putting off motherhood to a later age or whether they're just worried about getting older, you know, just think it will appeal to a lot of different people and we're hoping that it'll get a lot of press. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I basically did a lot of developmental work, a lot of line editing work, also worked with publicity on a strategy for the book. Oh, right. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So I have so many questions. So one is that (laughs) when you say you worked on the structure of the book, what does that mean? It means I actually wrote a table of contents based on the notes that the author had given to me. Sometimes with certain authors that you really, really want to work with, you will (laughs) settle for them just giving you their notes. Oh, And you'll have to then fashion these notes into a book, which can be really, really challenging in a sense it's kind of akin to being a ghostwriter oh wow I didn't know that okay so you, you're pretty much writing the entire book then and the author just gives you sort of their thoughts on key sort of elements of the book yeah I mean it's a collaborative process okay okay all right so so structure is basically the table of contents then and then you also uh, I think you brought this up earlier in the conversation which is how when you're editing a book, there are also certain key things that you have to think about, like who's going to write the initial introduction to the book, who are you going to give credits to, that sort of thing. So can you also touch upon those elements? Yeah, so increasingly, 
well, I don't know if it's happening more and more now or if I'm just aware of it because of my last job. But having blurbs, those quotes on the front and back covers from high-profile people saying, this is the best book ever, those are really, really important. So I think that's an important part of the process to, to obtain those blurbs. As an editor, you have to be sort of a publicist in that respect. You have to, you know, send out emails and make phone calls. And you sometimes have to, like, draft draft things that really busy people can put their names on. Oh, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> that's one way of, of kind of, like... It's like a trick for getting really high-profile people to contribute. But yeah, so I think, you know, having big names who who will agree to endorse a project from the get-go will actually convince or do something to convince a publishing house to go ahead and sign that book if they're on the fence, which may not be completely fair. but, But yeah, big name endorsements do play a role. Oh, okay. So just a quick clarification. So when you say that having big names can help a publishing house sign the book... So this is the author bringing in these big names or is it is it the publishing house then? I usually thought... it is the publishing house and usually that falls to the editor. So in my mind, the process is that, okay, the author brings in his, his or her book, then you are sort of the, you negotiate whatever, then it gets signed. And then once it's already signed, that's when the editor starts working with you and gets all of these big names to write sort of an initial introduction. So is that how it is or do I have the process wrong in my mind? No, that's basically right. Okay. So then what, what do you mean by having big names can help a publishing house sign the book? Oh, well, I guess, yeah, no, that's confusing. The process isn't always that straightforward. So sometimes if an author can say such and such has agreed to put a, a blurb on the front cover and write a foreword, then that would be kind of an unusual case where the author, instead of the editor, instead of the publishing house, has taken that upon themselves to oh, to it. get a big name to agree got it. to do that. So that would be that would be an unusual situation. I see, I see, I see. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. But otherwise, you're saying it's usually the editor who has to go around trying to get these names to. Yes. Yeah. For instance, for Life Begins at 60, you know, um, the author was interviewed way back when by some very big names like Meredith Vieira, but she doesn't have their contact details. So I'm now going and contacting them and trying to reach them on her behalf. Oh, cool. I see. I see. And so these are contacts which either the editor has himself or herself personally, or they're on the Rolodex of the publishing house. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, generally. I mean, sometimes authors will band, I'm sorry, not authors, editors will band together with a list of of people that they have gone to for blurbs consistently. And uh, right before I left Skyhorse, there was talk within our group of editors of just putting together a database of people um, that we could all sort of informally look to when we needed, okay. needed that. But it's not really an exact science. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can imagine. <laughs> oh, sorry. My dog. <laughs> no worries. Uh, and then, uh, and this might be you know up to you how you want to answer it, if you want to answer it. But when you're reaching out to these different people to write an introduction, does money ever come into the picture? Yes. Sometimes they will say, we will write this introduction, or even we will put our names on the introduction that you've written for a fee. Okay. okay. And so then the publishing house has to decide. Oh, whether to pay that fee okay okay and, yeah. and generally just to get you know for listeners i mean even i have no idea about this industry like how much does that i'm sure there's like a huge range but what does that range look like um i have to say i haven't experienced this very often so i'm probably not the most reliable source but mm-hmm. i've seen requests for 
something like $500, which doesn't seem too shocking. Okay, okay, I see. Got it. All right, and then just a one quick follow-up question on the structure that you mentioned, which is the table of contents. How do you determine what a good structure would look like? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It's a hard question, too, because I believe personally that a structure can can really only do so much. And if you are determined to stick rigidly to a structure for an entire book, then that tends to risk doing a disservice to the finished product. So I think when I say structure, table of contents, I also mean the headings throughout the books. For instance, we call them A heads and B heads, special features like lists, text boxes, appendices, this kind of thing. So when I set out the structure, I would actually plan for all of these elements. But as you're editing the book, and especially if if you're still writing the book, then these elements are definitely subject to change and evolve. Right. But a good structure, I mean, there's so many different definitions of, you know, how you can define a good structure for a book. But for me, I tend to like books that come full circle in some way. Yeah. I I guess the answer is that there's really no one definite definition except that you know whatever seems right in that situation you you mentioned a heads and b heads what is that so um those would just be termed copy editing terms for the levels of heading under a chapter so for instance if you're reading a reference book like for instance a plant book you know there would be chapter one a chapter title and then some text and then you would have another heading And that would be the A head. And then within that A heading, there might be two or three other levels of heading. There might be B heads with C heads. I see. Smaller, usually just like a smaller font, not as bold face. Got it. Yeah, it's like main heading and subheading, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. All right. So then let's get to the uh, publicity strategy. Can you share examples of what that might look like? Yeah, I just know that publicity is extremely important for books and having publicists who prioritize a title means that that title will usually perform much better than it would otherwise. You know, publicists, I believe they have targeted mailing lists that they look to for their books, publicity. And, you know, it tends to be hit or miss. Sometimes you get really great publicity. Sometimes you're disappointed that even, you know, the publicist's best efforts don't yield those big hits. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, you just have to kind of keep bugging the publicist at your company <laughs> as an editor to yeah. do the best they can for you, for your book. Right. But what are the what are the sort of key elements that you try and identify or define when you're putting together that strategy? I mean, for example, you it maybe it includes things like I think we need to create awareness in this target segment, or I I think we need to do a lot with videos on youtube i don't know i just start trying to understand like what is what is that publicity strategy looking like i think that publicists will tell authors and editors that they shouldn't start a strategy until a few months before the book goes on sale because the last thing you would want to do is publicize a book and people get really excited about it and there's nothing for them to buy yeah. <laughs> and then that buzz kind of dies down when it is time to release the book So in the meantime, publicists urge authors to develop an online following using social media. So basically, you know, start tweeting about the book subjects, getting people excited, positioning themselves as an expert, you know, start doing public speaking engagements if they're not already, just that kind of thing. 
I see. No, that that that's helpful. And it does the publishing house help the author then in sort of getting speaking engagements, for example, or figuring out their social media accounts? To an extent, they will. Okay. Okay. And that that's the the role of the publicist then. That would be the role of the publicist. But as an editor, sometimes you have to step in in a kind of de facto way and talk to them about it or refer them to the right publicist. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Okay. So uh, just this whole editing process then, right? Like how long does it take? I'm sure it varies a lot, but generally speaking, for the kind of projects you've worked on, Uh, Well, for journals, it's always very, very quick. Um, The journal I worked on at the academic publisher was monthly, and I actually worked with a team who was putting together um, these really high-profile journals on a monthly basis, so it was very, very Mm fast-paced. So, for instance, editing and overseeing proofreading for a journal issue would be undertaken in something like a day. But okay. when it comes to books, oh, wow. it varies. <laughs> it varies tremendously. It really does. Back when I worked on the gardening books, <clears throat> we had the luxury of a little bit more time, and I usually took six weeks to edit a book once it was in. And I would then send it back to the author for two weeks for them to review it in manuscript stage. Okay. And back then, I don't know if they still do this, but I would <laughs> actually just print out the edited manuscripts so they couldn't actually make changes in word <laughs> so they had to actually like I would send them the whole book print it out so they would have to make changes using proofreading marks you know with a pen or pencil and just send it back right so in that way they would become a little bit more judicious with their corrections it's important at that stage that you tell an author that they cannot rewrite the entire book because <laughs> that's just there's just no time for that yeah, yeah, for one yeah. thing so so that would be two weeks, and then I would take, I think, one to two weeks to selectively incorporate their changes, and then I would set it to production, and then after that would be the proofreading stage, which would be quite accelerated. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. So, like, when you say production, you mean, like, the actual printing and designing of the book? Um, no, production, I mean design. So, basically, okay. when you have an edited manuscript that's ready to go into design, you would just send it to the people who are putting it into their design program, such as InDesign. Okay. And so they're then putting it into pages. I see. I see. Okay. All right. So like throughout this process, are you working at least during the editing part? Is it just one editor or is there like a team of editors? In journals, there's usually a team in my experience, but in books, I found that it's very, very much a solo, solo thing. I see. Okay. All right. Cool. So generally... Go ahead. Only because it's subjective and sometimes like having two people will just slow the process down. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's a more efficient way of doing things, I guess. All right. Mm-hmm. And is there something like uh, success metrics for someone working as an editor? Well, in my last position, the success of an acquisitions editor like me was measured largely by the extent to which deadlines were met. We didn't have strict acquisitions targets that I recall, like some publishing houses do, but we were expected to be very prolific in commissioning new projects and seizing other publishing opportunities like backlist reissues. I see. We also had a large volume of project editing to carry out, and in my case, I was working on projects commissioned by other editors. Um, in most publishing houses, success is measured by the commercial performance of one's acquisitions as well as critical reception. Yeah, I would imagine that, right? So when you say commercial success, usually how would you define commercial success of a book? I I really just mean the number sold. 
Okay. Like literally okay. how many years old. I see. Yeah, so the so a publishing house might say, well, for us, commercial success means that, I don't know, like 10,000 copies are sold. Uh, and they, every house may have their own definition as an example. Yeah, exactly. Okay. For like a small publishing house, how many copies sold was like, wow, they, they, we sold so many copies of that book. <laughs> hmm. For a smaller publishing house, like fifteen to 25,000 okay. would be pretty impressive for a first print run. Okay. Okay. All right. So that's that's the first print run, and then you may have to order more depending on the demand. Yeah, and something like that would definitely then go into paperback reissue, which would mean that usually we first publish books in hardcover, and then if they do reasonably well, they don't even have to do that well to get paperback reissue, but if they do reasonably well, they're published again in paperback, and sometimes that involves breathing new life into the book in the sense of new cover, new blurbs, um, a new foreword by commission someone else to write a new introduction and mm-hmm. or foreword. Mm-hmm. So then that paperback would also right. hopefully do right. well in the marketplace. Right, right. Okay. Okay, that's extremely helpful. Thanks a lot. I think now I'd like to understand some of the more day-to-day aspects of this job. Could you share some of the problems that an editor might experience on a more day-to-day basis? Just to understand, like, you know, what is life like as an editor, day in the life of an editor? I would say the biggest challenge is how to spend your time as an editor. For instance, in my last role, I think I spent too much time listening to authors on the phone talk about (laughs) talk about their books when really, you know, shorter phone calls probably would have done been just as effective staying on the phone, listening to them, because I really am curious about, you know, their views and their ideas for the book. But sometimes that can really eat up a large portion of your day. Um, So challenges would be time management when it comes to really when you're really, really, I would say overbooked, you have literally lots and lots and lots of books to do and lots of manuscripts that kind of get get given to you after after other editors move along. So yeah, I would say sometimes like being overworked and having to stay late and bringing books home and on vacation kind of seems to never end because there always is so much reading and editing to be done. Yeah, yeah. So time management is a clear sort of challenge that you face on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I think editors who kind of overcome this problem, they just learn to prioritize ruthlessly. Mm-hmm. And I know I've learned a ton about that fairly recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any sort of instances that come to mind, sort of like last minute crisis or firefighting before or after a a book gets published? Yes, (laughs) that actually happens quite a bit. Um, Yeah, I mean, and sometimes you are expected to make magic happen literally overnight. One example that comes racing to mind for me happened very recently. I was tasked with editing a book that was slated to be one of the biggest sellers for the company. Mm -hmm due to an extremely high-profile celebrity author with major media platforms, such Mm -hmm. as hit TV shows, who had already Mm -hmm. agreed on slots that they were going to promote the book, so it literally could not be moved to a different pub date. Um, The book actually, (laughs) or the manuscript, the raw text, came in at 140,000 words, and when I received it, I believe it was already past the due-to-production deadline, yet, of course, I hadn't even begun to edit it yet. (laughs) And not everyone at the company knew about the situation, so there was a lot of pressure on top of the pressure I was already putting on myself. Right. So that would be a stressful situation. Yeah. I mean, I 
did the best I could, lost a lot of sleep, telling mm-hmm. myself this was an extraordinary mm-hmm. situation, mm-hmm. and I simply had to buckle down and make miracle happen. So that was, I would say, a stressful situation, yeah, but one that yeah. was rewarding in a way. No, definitely. I mean, I, I guess uh, the more higher profile a project is, there will be more and more people who will sort of want to make sure that everything is okay, which just adds to the pressure that you're already under. And I guess the key message that I'm hearing over here is that time management is becomes very, very critical. The more successful you are as an editor, and then you can just get more and more projects to work on. Exactly. That's so true. Yeah. Yes. The higher you climb, the more, the more is expected of you. And, um, also, you know, I keep hearing terms like crash books and instant books more and more frequently within traditional publishing. So, um, so editors increasingly are, I think, asked to kind of make miracles happen. And that's another stressful part of the role because as editors, you know, you want to make a book, you have very, very high standards usually for your books. And Mm -hmm. so, you have to kind of negotiate this dichotomy between wanting it to be really, really good and wanting it to be done really quickly. So yeah, no. What are, what are these crash books? Yeah. So sometimes when you're doing political books, you will try to, you know, you'll have an idea and everyone will love it and they'll say, "This is great. We have to get this out right away," and it'll be very, very time sensitive. So then you'll refer to it as crash book. So basically the editor responsible will have their work cut out for them because they'll have to basically find a way to get this book together and on shelves by a certain date, whether it's before the primary elections for a certain point in the presidential elections or for a holiday or something like that. Got it, got it, got it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that sounds stressful. So that's, yeah, but I mean, that's, that's an exhilarating aspect of publishing too. (laughs) I wouldn't say it's, I'm not, you know, complaining about that. I think that a publisher who really understands that is is probably making a very good business decision to rush things out right. to hit certain targets. Right, right. So like if you were to think of a typical day for us as an editor, what are the sort of key activities that you would be engaging in? Let's see, when I was working for the academic publisher, basically we would just we would just work on editing our journals pretty much pretty much all day every day and doing various production work as well. At the book publisher, we would be doing answering a lot of emails and trying to organize things while also trying to get some some copy editing in. But really, um, each day tends to be quite different. Even if you're just you know working on journals at your desk, you'll be working on lots of different problem solving, a lot of different issues, and working on a lot of different topics. So, so that aspect, I would say, it's it's certainly never boring. You know, I, I don't think it doesn't sound like a boring job at all. But like at any point in time, uh, someone who is doing reasonably well as an editor, how many projects would you be working on? Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, so at Timber Press, my first job, I was usually working on only a handful of projects in terms of what I was editing myself, maybe four or five. Um, and I would have about 12 on my plate in oh, wow. various stages. But at Skyhorse, I would usually have something like 50 a year that an editor would be responsible for. So it really varies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot, though. Much more than mm-hmm. I expected. Okay, great. And I think you already touched on this a little bit, but just um, generally speaking, what are the working hours like in this job? Well, my last job for the independent commercial book publisher was very 
was very strict and everyone was there nine to five thirty. The job I held before that for the big academic publisher had a more flexible hours culture with a considerable contingent working from home on any given day. In oh, both I cases, I would wake up very early to work for the economics journal in London before leaving for my in-house positions and would then work for the London position late into the evenings. So I'm perhaps an extreme example of someone who took on two jobs at once mm-hmm. <laughs> and was yeah. working really yeah. long hours. Yeah. But now as a freelancer, my hours are almost completely flexible, yeah. which can be a bonus as well as a big challenge. Yeah. No, I mean life as a freelancer is so so different anyway but you know this brings up a very interesting point to the extent that you are comfortable with this what is your view on working as an editor from a financial perspective well you know I just mentioned how I'd had you know I'd held two jobs concurrently for most of the time that I've been back in the U.S. which was um, the past five years of my life and I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of publishers um, at my level even really um, would take on outside projects as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're completely supporting yourself and you live in a very expensive place like I do in Manhattan, it is very, it is a very challenging field. You're going to see your friends, you know, becoming investment bankers and lawyer, corporate lawyers and, <laughs> you yeah. know, affording to buy houses while yeah. you're basically yeah. still renting and that sort of thing. So from a financial perspective, for many editors, it's not ideal. But the good thing about being an editor is that you can freelance in your spare time. So if you can handle it, you know, taking on extra work, such as ghostwriting, which can be lucrative, is usually a solution. Oh, I see. Okay, no, that's a very interesting point. But can you share some numbers, like, for example, the typical career path and how the salary might vary at the various levels, the range of the salary? So I guess I'll, I'll stick to book publishing for this one. Um, book publishing, a typical career path for an average company might look like editorial assistant, which is mostly administrative with some competitive analysis and kind of apprenticeship would be very low. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm not speaking of any of the companies that I've worked for recently, but I would say something between 30, 28 and 35, maybe okay. um, that's to assist an editor. Right? That's it. That's USD. Yes, exactly. Okay. And th- that's uh, okay. So twenty to thirty-five thousand dollars annually. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in this, you can just look this up on Glassdoor. Yeah, I'm yeah. not. I'm not citing um, any of the companies I worked for previously, but sure. to assistant editor, this is. I skip this step, but this would be uh, the next step up, and so they'd get a small increase in salary. To project editor, project editor who's responsible for copy editing and developing the manuscript, they would probably get. I don't know, I would say in the 40s. Okay. To acquisitions editor or development editor, to senior level editor, to executive editor or editorial director, and then up to publisher. So, I mean, I don't think even for like an editorial director, the salary is anywhere near as high as it would be for like an entry level law associate in New York. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I I guess... It's almost like you do want to take on those additional freelance projects to supplement what you're making in your full-time job. Yeah, and I will say that among, you know, among my coworkers and friends in this field, usually to to have their own place in Manhattan, they do have to 
take on some kind of other freelance work in their spare time. Right, that makes sense. So this freelance work, I guess, like for example, if you work as the ghostwriter of a, of a book, like how much would something like that pay? Oh my gosh. Well, it varies so much. Yeah. <laughs> the ones that I've done haven't paid a huge amount, mm-hmm. but they do pay pretty well. And when you get to the really big projects, then they do pay like... I don't know. I've I've heard of projects paying thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars for very experienced, wow. high profile writers. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. even if you do like a few of those projects in a year, you're you're you know, <laughs> you're good. Okay, got it. All right. So, in your opinion, what do you think are the most interesting aspects of working as an editor? Um, so I think the most interesting part of working as an editor is just the excuse to learn about a subject in depth. To me, that's a huge bonus. And that's really the most, the most fun part of being an editor. You know, you can focus on, for instance, uh, functional training or yoga, if you're working on a book on one of those subjects, or a certain type of plant or a certain period in history, and really just learn about it in depth. I think that's, that's really the most fun and interesting aspect. Oh, definitely. So I guess whatever jobs you've had so far, you've had a lot of interest, personally speaking, in those subjects? Um, actually, no. no. <laughs> I, I've actually worked in areas where I had no interest, for instance, gardening. Mm. And I still have never, <laughs> never like really planted anything. But I think in a way, I mean, you just, you get interested in, I would say, the contours of the discourse. So you get interested in, you know, the language of the subject. You start to become familiar with Latin names of plants and how you use them. And just various conventions of speech and writing within that particular niche. And to me, that in itself is interesting. Um, And (laughs) I don't know, I just, I just find that very interesting. And also I think that the fact that I don't have a personal interest in something um, allows me to be a little bit more um, kind of take an outsider's view as an editor and say to the author, okay, how will this be palatable to a reader who is not familiar with the subject? Right. No, no, definitely. I mean, I guess what you're saying is that even if you may not have a personal interest from the get-go, uh, you will still learn uh, about a completely new subject. And who, who knows, you might just get interested along the way. So that's like a side benefit. <laughs> but are there any aspects that you find challenging? So I, I know you mentioned the time management piece, which is definitely one. Anything else? Yes, it's challenging sometimes when you are working on a book that you don't that you really don't agree with because as an editor you really have to be a champion for your books and um, if for instance the book is completely at odds with with your own ethics then you know you still do a good job on the book but it becomes a little bit you become conflicted because I think as an editor at least for me I do have to sort of to an extent you like (laughs) put my heart and soul into a book it is kind of emotional so if it's something you don't agree with then you do have to detach yeah. which is which I don't love doing yeah that, that that's a very very good point and I guess um, as an editor who is working at a large company how much say do you have in terms of the projects that you work on like can you say no to a project um I suppose that you could hmm. but I actually don't think I've ever said no to a project okay okay because I you know I think it's important to be adaptable and I think it's important to be versatile and also, you know, if there's a project that I find disagreeable, maybe a lot of other editors would too. And I wouldn't want to just like, God forbid, like someone would dump it on them just because I don't want to do it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, 
So I feel like, okay, I'm taking one for the team. Um, (laughs) And oftentimes, you know, you don't really know until you really start working on a book how good or bad it's going to be, how good or bad the experience is going to prove to be. So um, I try to say yes to everything when I'm working for a company. Now, as a freelancer, totally different story. Of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, as a freelancer, you have complete freedom to decide what you choose to take on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So, and, you know, are there any aspects that you just do not like about this job? You know, I think I've just basically covered some of them. I mean, I don't like when I feel like a book that I'm working on or a journal article is not completely where I want it to be, but yet there's a lot of pressure to get it out the door. But I can't think of anything that I really detest about publishing. It definitely has its challenges, but ultimately... I really love the job. Okay. Yeah, no, good. I mean, nice to be talking to someone who loves what they do. That is a rarity these days. So that's good. Um, All right. So I think, Erica, by now we have a really good understanding of what an editor does. And I I still have so many questions, but I think in in the interest of time, I'll now move to uh, just some questions from the point of view of people who might be interested in exploring this field and you know applying for a job potentially Mm -hmm. so first of all in your opinion what kind of person do you think would really thrive as an editor um so when it comes to the type of editing that well really in-depth copy editing or line editing developmental editing aka structural editing in other words really spending a lot of time with the manuscripts I would say someone who has introvert qualities. In other words, someone who will not find five hours straight with a manuscript (laughs) without speaking to anyone to be absolute torture. That kind of person would find the job more enjoyable than someone who was the complete opposite. But that said, having good emotional intelligence and social skills is vital when working with authors and agents and solving all the problems that will come up as projects progress. And having extroverted qualities will make the job more enjoyable for certain kinds of editors like acquisitions editors in particular because they often play sort of a salesperson role when it comes to convincing authors and agents to sign contracts that they want to secure so a very outgoing person who thrives when building and maintaining networks will relish many aspects of for instance an acquisitions editor role right oh man like uh, so uh there's so many qualities so i but i guess what you're saying is you know, either if, if you're like extremely extroverted, then an acquisitions editor is the sort of role which you will definitely enjoy. And if you're focused more on the introverted side, then copy editing is definitely helpful. And so maybe look for a job in some of the more bigger companies where the two roles are separate. That's right. And also, I just want to say, you know, because you're working with words, so many words, yeah. <laughs> so often, um, you know, for some people, grammar, syntax, writing itself doesn't come that easily. And so I would say you'll, you know, have a better time, a better experience in the job if you are someone to whom this comes comes easily oh, and definitely. is enjoyable rather than being someone who definitely. who finds it really hard to write <laughs> to edit. You gotta love the core thing that you're doing, right? Like you gotta like the language. Yeah, and I mean the just at the very basic level, you know. Yeah. Intrinsically if you kind of I don't know did well on the reading part of your SATs for instance that kind of early determining stuff Um, if you have like kind of natural inbuilt affinity for it that certainly helps yeah for sure okay and the best editors that you may have seen or maybe you yourself are one what do you see them do differently can you share an example 
I think the quote unquote best editors have a mix of, as I say, introverted and extroverted qualities so that, you know, as I mentioned, they can happily spend hours focused on a manuscript, but they also have people skills. I also think that the very best editors I've worked with are completely selfless. That doesn't mean that they don't take pride in their work, that they're not ambitious or even competitive. It's just that they do not experience any inclination toward wanting to get credit for every way in which they improve a manuscript. I see. You know, there's no time for that. They just get on with it and generously put an immense amount of effort into something that um, there's often no incentive for them to do it. By no incentive, I mean that the author will usually not appreciate it. It's just human nature. You know, they either think that they've written the edited version themselves <laughs> or they think that their original is the best thing I ever see. written. Okay. And I also mean that as an editor, you're usually under intense deadline pressure, so your publishing house is usually rushing you. And as long as you correct glaring errors, they will usually be rushing you only because there are so many moving parts that have to happen once editing at manuscript stage right. is complete. So anyway, self selflessness in terms of wanting to make something better with no personal gain except the knowledge that you are putting something of better quality out into the right. world is a quality of the best editors. Right. Um, you have to be secure enough with yourself and your reputation that you're comfortable putting blood, sweat, and tears into something someone else will get the glory for. <laughs> oh man, yeah. yeah. No, but I can imagine like this is sort of like a behind the scenes kind of role, right? Ultimately, the totally. Person, yeah. And, and um, that really goes double for ghostwriting. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. And the more of this yeah. brand of secure selflessness an editor has, the better work he or she can do. Um, you know, I can think of countless instances where like my colleagues would take their books home on vacation, sacrifice sleep and so forth, not because they particularly wanted to, but because they just could not stomach the idea of putting something that they thought was subpar out into the world, even if they wouldn't be immediately recognized for any of this, you know, extra effort. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I mean, you've been in this industry for so long now. Have you seen any common mistakes that people make, especially when they're early in their careers? Yeah, many editors are perfectionistic and hold on to a project for too long, trying to make it better and better. Um, I remember the editorial director at my first job gave me some really resonant advice. She said, any book can always be better. It's mm. important to have some perspective and realize that even though books will be on shelves for many years and journal articles will be relied on to drive thought forward, they will never be as perfect as their editor would like them to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to just keep agonizing, I guess. And that, that was yeah. something that I did want to ask, which is that, you know, how do you decide that, hey, I think this is ready. I think we can go ahead and publish this. Hmm. I mean, usually it's just you're under time pressure. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I wouldn't say there's one hard and fast rule for that. It's just something you just have to know. Yeah, yeah. All right. And then generally, is there something like a typical background for for working in this role? When I was in college, book publishing was one of the most aspirational jobs for English majors. And um, I do actually encounter a lot of former English majors in trade book publishing. In academic publishing, by contrast, you often see editors who have advanced degrees in areas that have nothing to do with English, like engineering, physics, and a wide range of other subjects. Oh, wow. For instance, at Elsevier, I noticed that several of the high-profile editors had advanced degrees in science, which gave them access to the academic community, which was useful for, for their acquisitions. I think that makes sense, because if you're working at a journal, I guess the most important 
piece is the content right the the content that you're bringing to the table so having those actual degrees in those subjects can help a lot it can help but when it comes to copy editing even very technical material having experience in the area in which you're editing can be a great asset can make it easier for you mm-hmm. but it's not i find that it's not usually a requirement oh i see okay all right but otherwise you're saying that having a background in english of course if you're publishing in english uh, is usually the the typical background for people in this role yeah i would say that would be that would, I find that to be a typical okay. background, like a stereotype that is true. Yeah. And I think you mentioned trade book publishing. What does that mean? Trade book publishing just means as opposed to academic publishing, which would be mostly sold to, you know, university libraries and research centers. Trade publishing is sold to the general market. So in Barnes & Noble, all of those books would be trade books. Okay. Okay. So if you want to work as an editor... What are the kind of companies that you can find a job in? Like, are there sort of categories of companies? In books, you can work for a big five publisher with many imprints or a medium to smaller independent publisher. You can also look for jobs with a packager, which is basically a company hired by a publisher to produce books to tight deadlines. An advantage of working for a packager, if you want to edit in a pure sense, is that you don't have to worry about how your books will perform. Your company simply hands them over to the publisher once you've completed editing and they take care of sales and distribution. So a packager is another option. Um, As a journal manager, which oversees editing, you can sometimes find a job with a university like I did or with an educational society, or you can work in-house with an academic publishing company. Okay, okay. So when you say big five publisher, are there like big five publishing houses in the US? Yes, in New York, there are big five, and I just wanted to look them up to make sure I'm not... <laughs> I think I know what they are, but five publishers that kind of predominate in the traditional publishing landscape in New York. I see. Got it, got it, got it. And so how? what is the way to apply to these houses? So the big publishing houses, almost across the board, you should just go to their webpage and check out their vacancies. Oh, so you just do you just apply on the website? Yeah, you can apply on the website. Um, you can search, you know, I find Glassdoor, LinkedIn, Indeed.com will often list publishing vacancies for for the big five. I see. Okay. And uh, uh, in, in a lot of industries, people say that getting a referral is the right way to, or the most effective way to get a job or at least get an interview at a company. Is that the case in case of publishing also? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's okay. really, and that's why like, I'm kind of conflicted saying like, oh, go to their website because sometimes, you know, sometimes that works, but oftentimes it does go into a black hole, I think. Yeah. So getting a referral is in this industry as well as many other industries, really the best possible way to get okay. a second look. Yeah. Yeah. And for something like editing, even when you're getting a referral, what is the best way for a candidate to stand out? Because I know that this is a very competitive space, right? So do people submit just their resumes or do they submit something else also? Yeah, I mean, I know I am actually applying for some jobs myself. And I, so like at my level, I submit a resume, you know, a basic cover letter. But I also will submit, sometimes I'll ask for a list of books that I've acquired. So I also have that list. Oh, okay. um, sometimes I'll send them book maps exemplifying how I've like developed books in the past. Yeah, usually just basically the resume, cover letter, and list of books that you've acquired. Oh, so when you say a book map, what does that mean? 
Oh, a book map is something that it's a term that's used in illustrated nonfiction books. Mm. So basically, as a developmental editor for, say, fitness books, I would use InDesign to create kind of map of what would be on every single page of the book just so we know how many pages each section would take up. So in that sense, you're really planning out the book very laboriously, um, very specifically before, often before you even find an author. Wow. Um, And so in that case, the editor is playing a really large role, really large creative role, I guess, Mm -hmm. in the book's inception. No, that, that, that sounds like a big bulky package then when you're applying for a job, right? Like, so there's your resume. There's a list of books that you've acquired. And then there's also potentially this book map, which illustrates that you, the work that you've done as an editor. Well, I've only done that on certain certain occasions, sometimes when they ask for it. So yeah, okay. it's really not that much. Okay, okay. And let's say once you get an interview, then what is the interview like for an editor? And what are the key qualities that are assessed in that interview? Well, interviews can vary from formal questioning to casual conversation uh, with one person, with many people, or, you know, the interview we can bounce around from office to office. I know when I've interviewed candidates, my coworkers and I look first and foremost for someone we would want to work with on a daily basis. So someone who has a can-do attitude. And since this is an entry-level position, we want someone who would want, who would be willing to do less than glamorous work, like answering phones, despite having a really amazing degree. We value experience and look for entry-level candidates who have held internships in publishing even before they graduate. Even though I sometimes worry that this is not fair to those who cannot afford unpaid internships. (laughs) But yeah, that does often play a role if they've had a number of internships that are really related to the position that they're about to apply for. Um, I personally look for like intellectual curiosity, the semblance of integrity and writing ability coupled with the understanding that the writing will not form the heart of the role. Oh, right, right, right. Now, this is this is very, very helpful. I wanted to also ask that, you know, a question that I've received a lot is like, are there any popular, not not popular, but helpful resources that interested candidates can use both to learn more about working as an editor, as well as looking for a job, finding a job, preparing for interviews, things like that? Yeah, I think if someone would like to work in mainstream publishing, um, they should definitely start reading Publishers Weekly, which is a great roundup of what's happening in the publishing world. It comes out, I think, every, well, every week, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they should come into an interview kind of referring to this knowledge in a savvy way. I think that would impress potential employers. And, you know, postgraduate publishing courses, such as the one offered by Columbia University, can be very helpful, especially if you're not in New York and want to spend some time here networking. I know that some great companies, including my most recent employer, recruited heavily at this particular job fair and would often bring candidates back to our office for interview right after the fair. So um, but that said, those courses are expensive and are certainly not a prerequisite for getting a job in publishing. For sure, for sure. But they, they will be helpful for anyone who is also looking to just understand the role more, right? Yes, they, they do have value. Yeah, okay. I mean, are, there, are you aware of any online courses which might be helpful? Um, that's a really good question. I know I did an online journalism course at one point in London, but... I'm sure there are, um, although I no worries. Yeah, don't if you, really know of any. Yeah, if you think of anything, I can include the course in the show notes. You know, maybe something on Coursera or Udacity, which okay. might be good. Yeah. Another thing which uh, I get asked a lot is that, let's say that someone is sort of interested in editing. Like, it sounds interesting, but that's it. Is there a way for them to assess 
how good they might be at the job like before they actually go into it full time I think they should do ideally do a few short internships at okay. a variety of different companies okay. just so they can see what the atmosphere is like get a sense of the things that people deal with on a daily basis at different sorts of companies and you know get a first-hand look at whether this will be right for them whether they will enjoy it yeah yeah and these internships I guess what you're also saying is that if you're open to unpaid internships that's that's good Yes, in publishing, yeah. in journals and book publishing, they chances are they're not paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fine. I mean, especially when you're just trying to figure out how much you will like the job. I think it makes sense. Okay. Yeah, and I, I mean, you can also schedule inter- informational interviews. Um, it's really nice when, you know, people say, you know, I'd like to take you out for coffee for lunch and talk about your role and my interest in getting into this field. And I think that's really nice. You just have to realize that sometimes people really won't have time and not to take it personally if they say no, (laughs) just try the next person. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, For doing these kind of unpaid internships or even a paid internship, would you have a recommendation in terms of going for something digital, like a, you know, like a tech crunch, which does a lot of tech reporting as opposed to more of an analog, like book publishing, journal publishing? Um, ideally, I think if you're at that exploratory stage, it would be great to do both. Hmm. I think that would be a really valuable experience, contrasting something like Office Atmosphere at TechCrunch versus at a traditional big five book publisher. I think that would be a really interesting yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Erica. This is long, but an extremely, extremely helpful and informative discussion. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with someone listening to the show? Advice for anyone who might be considering this role? Um, For anyone who's seriously considering this role, I would actually warn that traditional publishing is not the most stable field with the advent of eBooks and the proliferation of self-publishing. So, um, And I would also remind them that they're unlikely to get fame and fortune this way. (laughs) And that sometimes it can be frustrating to toil on a book and get no recognition for it. But I would also say that it can be extraordinarily satisfying to hold a book in your hands, knowing how much work went into its creation, or to open a medical journal that you edited and see life-saving studies described. So if these things really excite you, then book publishing and journals publishing, it may be challenging but it's also extremely satisfying all right thank you so much i can't imagine ending the podcast on a better note so thank you again for your time oh thank you yeah for sure all right take care have a good day bye-bye thanks you too bye so that was erica with a very helpful and a very detailed account of what working as an editor is all about. I really enjoyed today's discussion and I hope that you guys enjoyed it too and found it helpful. Of course, if you have any questions at all for Erica or for me, or if you have any feedback to share, or if you just want to say hi, you can email us at learneducatediscover at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is at LED underscore curator. That's at LED underscore C-U-R-A-T-O-R. We're also on Facebook now. So you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learn, educate, discover. And if you like the page, you'll start getting regular updates 
on all the great content that we are creating for you guys. Of course, if you like the show, you can subscribe to the show. That's the best thing you can do. You can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. We're available on all three. And you can simply search for Learn, Educate, Discover on either of these three and hit subscribe. Of course, while you're at it, leave a review. It only takes a minute and it means a lot. Of course, show notes from today's episode will be posted to our blog. You can find our blog at medium.com forward slash at LED underscore curator. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for your time and for listening. And until the next one, bye-bye.